Thank you for joining us today at Miniature Wargaming Labs. My name is James, and today I am joined by Edgar and Damien, the authors and game designers of Blood and Steel, new game coming out from Firelock Games. Actually, when this airs in a couple of days, it'll only be, what, a week until your uh, new game system hits. Um, so just so people don't have to listen to more than five minutes of us talking, why don't you give us the... Uh, 30-second elevator pitch on what is Blood and Steel. Go for it, Edgar. Okay, well... <laughs> Which one's going to step up? That's always the I'll, fun of the, the turf person. Okay. About it. So, uh, Blood and Steel is a game that is looking at skirmish fighting, specifically in the skirmishing line. So, it tends to be a lot of light units and things like that uh, during the reign of Queen Victoria. So, that would be 1837 to 1901. The period is very interesting because of all of the changes that happen in military technology, uh, the Industrial Revolution and its uh, outcome uh, in, in warfare. Uh, so it moved from uh, quasi-Napoleonic type of tactics with uh, things like the Mexican-American War, all the way to uh, tactics that are a lot more like what today's modern warfare is by the time we get to like the Boxer Rebellion and the Spanish-American War. Uh, the Firepower is so much uh, better that uh, we cannot just be walking around in, in tight formations anymore. Everything has to be in the open and, and moving uh, differently. So that's our focus. It's a big, big focus. Uh, and I think we did a very good job at showing the differences in, especially in the weapons and tactics throughout that time. For those that are familiar with Blood and Plunder, and Blood and Valor, which are two of the other games that are already out. One deals with the Age of Piracy, the Golden Age of Piracy, and the other one deals with World War I skirmishing. We fit pretty much right in between the two. Yeah, I have, I didn't buy into the uh, Blood and Plunder Raise the Black. It tempted me, uh, but I wanted the Admiral package and that was just a bridge too far for me, but I, I bought into the Blood and Valor. And so I, you know, I have been, looking for a game for this period so the little wars and because there are a lot of little tiny wars all over africa south america the far east of where skirmishing where there were no large um infantry formations or cavalry but it was more what you think of like the company size and smaller uh and that's a fascinating part of history but there's not a lot of games directed at it and I've been waiting and there's other ones you can bash into that form, but you guys actually hit that period of tackling those um, little, the small wars of um, what's considered the classical colonialist uh, period there. But as we go in here, we normally ask people to uh, prove their bona fides. So um, we can start with you, Edgar. How did you get into miniature war gaming? It's a, uh, there's a drive from picking up a miniature to like designing a game. True, true. So I was in the service, I was in the US Navy uh, and I'd just gotten married not too long before. Uh, and I was looking for a hobby. The hobby that I had was not very, very military-like. Uh, so I decided to go into painting miniatures. My wife's cousin uh, it was big into uh, miniature wargaming. And as a matter of fact, he is our historical, he was a Lieutenant Colonel, actually he was a Colonel in the army. And uh, he's our historical and military um, person, expert guy. Uh, so he showed me his miniature figurines. I looked at him. I said, oh, that's pretty nice and cool. I, I don't understand what you mean by you play games with them. Like, <laughs> like G.I. Joe's when I was a kid, pew, pew, whatever. 
but he explained how that went. And I thought that was pretty interesting. But I started just painting them. And then um, the people who got me the miniatures uh, got me to visit some people that were playing with the miniatures that I was painting. And uh, I basically caught on right away. I thought it was pretty neat to be able to do that socialization, uh, being across the table from somebody else, uh, following rules and and reenacting history that way. So I basically started the hobby historical. I have played sci-fi, fantasy and other things, but my, my main passion has always been historicals all the way through. I started playing like in the 1995-ish and uh, here we are, 2022, and still going strong. You do, you still do the poo poo, poo, -poo noises when you're, uh, <laughs> yeah, when especially you're when we play Star Wars games, yeah, yeah. So, how about you, Damien? Like me, I, uh, I came from the other end of the spectrum. I swear I'd never play historicals. I was, um, I, I grew up in East Tennessee. Was at a, uh, with a group up there got involved basically in 40k second edition was more of a sci-fi player and uh but around the same time period mid 90s and um would see them playing acw games or, or painting up napoleonics and was like there's no way i'm gonna play those it's just ridiculous it's too much painting too much attention to detail that i didn't want to get involved with and uh then i moved down to florida and met the folks in jacksonville at the garrison and uh and got sucked in, got got involved in historicals. And now it's um, I play that majority of the time. I, I do play some of the other stuff still um, on occasion, but majority of the time now it's it's probably more historical related gaming for me. So I came from the other end of the spectrum. Well, let me ask you, what what caused the escalation in behavior, much like a serial killer? something must have moved you from playing the games to designing the games and also in a partnership, not just doing it by yourself. What, why did you two uh, pair up to try to tackle this period? I like that term escalation and behavior. I think I'm going to have to use that, maybe put it in a t-shirt someplace. Um, so, you know, you play for a while and you see some things that you like and you like to tweak it, how's rule things and whatnot. Uh, so there's a little bit of game design element going on uh, normally with, with a lot of players. Uh, in this particular case, we saw Blood and Plunder and how that rule mechanic worked. And then we saw how the Danes moved it into Blood and Valor using pretty much the same game mechanics. And that's what led me to think, well, geez, if we could do that, we could do that for like another period that they're not covering, maybe Napoleonics. Well, we don't have a lot of Napoleonic skirmishing troops, but I do have quite a bit in the Victorian era. So I started thinking we can do Napoleonic skirmishing and had some conversations. Uh, Damien came on board because he also had some ideas. Um, and so we decided to partner up and uh, start writing and play testing and got the blessing from Firelock Games, uh, specifically to the Victorian period. And that's how it happened. It just one of those, you know what would be kind of cool to have something. And we have a friend who's from New Zealand. So there was a nice little miniature line uh, from New Zealand. I think they're from Empress. Um, we yeah. decided to try to play with those. Uh, I'm from Puerto Rico, where the Spanish-American War was something of importance. So I decided, let's do something. I've never seen anything with, uh, with that, that for that war. So let's include that in there. And so before we knew it, we had uh, six different conflicts uh, flushed out. We had, uh, let's see, Damien. I, Damien's going to correct me if I get it wrong, because uh, 
I'm a little tired, but I think the website out just in case. (laughs) Oh, yeah, we have uh, we start with Mexican American, the second Seminole War, yeah, the Mexican American War, the American Civil War, the Anglo Zulu War, uh, forgot the Taranaki War, which is the one of the New Zealand wars, and then the Spanish American War. You know, some of those are uh, seminal uh, conflicts that a lot of colonial players play, for example, the Anglo Zulu War. Um, and then a couple of those, like uh, the New Zealand War and the Second Seminole, are very, are quite a bit niche. And it, we actually wanted to bring smaller conflicts that fit what we were trying to do in better and to basically maybe expose uh, historical gamers in the US and around the world to other conflicts that are not, you know, that don't usually get the headlines, um, but are pretty neat to, to fight on. Well, you know, uh, I think before the show, I told you that I was interested in uh, the Philippine insurrection. I know that's the old term. We now say Philippine-American War. Um, but when I s- saw what you were putting out with this book, instantly thought to like um, some of the banana wars and the filibusters. Because um, I know in like War Games Illustrated and some other miniature magazines, that's a period of where people have said, hey, there's this period of history called the filibusters. And they weren't the greatest people, but for small skirmish games, this fits. I think, so I was looking like, yours is actually a rule set designed to tackle that exact nature of warfare there. Um, but would you describe this as a beer and pretzel game, or do you see this playing on a tournament scene? <laughs> I, always ask, I always ask game designers that, because there's, when people write rules, there's the difference between like, um, Warhammer and Infinity, yeah, where you can um, take a three-year law degree course and argue your points about line of sight and everything, or you have something more um, like the Osprey Games, or it's just a short, fast rule book. Everyone's supposed to be friends. I I, personally, I'm not a. uh, I don't like tournament playing. I'd rather just play a casual game. That's um, you know. Uh, something that I'm not out to min max or try to table somebody. It's more about enjoying the uh, experience. But um, interestingly enough, I think um, the other, the other rule sets are kind of being played in a tournament style at a couple of different conventions. Um, And we haven't necessarily tested the, uh, the cross period, how that would play, you know, um, it, it, it will be interesting, but uh, as far as that goes, I, I consider it more of a, a beer and pretzel. It's more of a, to me, an enjoy the experience type of game set rather than a, you know, crunch the numbers and find the optimal list to try to table your opponent. So I, I got a second what uh, Damien said just then. Uh, our focus has always been in enjoying the social experience between the, the players involved and things. And so that's what we thrive to do, make sure that the game works really well in that, in that situation. However, the game is based on the blood and plunder mechanics and an engine, which has been played in tournament style for a while. We do not depart from that enough to be able to say, well, we can't play this as a tournament game. Yeah. Like he said, though, we may have some issues with Zulus fighting against Mexicans from the Zulus from the Anglo-Zulu War and Mexicans from the Mexican-American War. 
we have pointed them so that we could absolutely do that. And we, we know people are going to absolutely do that. They're going to, they're going to throw some kind of weird, uh, let's point out some zombies and how the zombies against the Confederate troops or something. I, it's going to happen. So, but when it comes to playing in tournaments, we believe that the points uh, system will work out, but we have to have a pretty good caveat in place that that was not the intent when it was written. It should work and it probably works. Uh, it, and we have in mind that between uh, now and well next year, we will have to work on how that, how to have a tournament. Um, our missions and objectives and things are already uh, set up so that that could take place. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, can we do this crazy? Like you, you got Filipinos and I got Maori without work. Um, and make, making sure that if there's some adjustments that need to be made just for specifically for co competitive play, that we have those in place. All right. Now you mentioned the um, blood and plunder was kind of like the uh, fountainhead for this uh, game system. Um, you mentioned the mechanics. Could you describe the mechanics for anyone who's unfamiliar uh, with those games? So basically uh, in a game turn for our game uh, and for blood and plunder and blood and valor, uh, what happens is you have some some sort of initiative. Um, and in all three games, the way that we handle initiative is different. So they make three very distinctive games. And whoever has the initiative gets to activate a unit first, and then the opponent activates a unit, and then you go back to how you're going to do initiative. Blood and Plunder does it through cards. You have a deck of cards that you play a card, a blind card down, and then you compare the cards and see who wins the initiative for the round. And Blood and Valor, there is a bidding system um, with a particular number of of uh, initiative points that you can bid yeah. off of. And in our game, thanks to Damien, came up with an amazing, and people love this initiative system, you have an initiative dice pool that you roll off and then you bid off of whatever you've got in your initiative, the values of the dice in your initiative pool. So again, whoever wins that bid uh, activates a unit and whoever came in second in that regard activates a unit afterwards. So we keep going back and forth uh, that way. So for the most part, we're going to have an I go, you go type of game. Um, it is possible for me to activate two units in a row, especially if, if I lost a bit last turn and I win the bit this turn. Uh, but for the most part, everybody's just uh, basically activated in that way. So we have a, a bidding phase, or we call that the initiative phase. Then we have an activation phase, which you actually activate the units based on your bidding. And then at the end of the turn, uh, we have a morale phase where we get checked to see whether the victory conditions are in place for a, uh, an army we call force to um, to make a roll to see if like a morale roll called a resolve check to see whether they stay in the fight or they don't. And it's a die ten based system. All of the all the systems yes. are die ten based. Uh, you have <clears throat> certain stats for um, for shooting or for ranged combat or for melee and for saves, and then uh, also a morale mechanic, a resolve. So you can cause casualties, but you can also fatigue uh, units and uh, fatiguing a unit is a way to also get them to leave the table um, and, and obviously win the game. But uh, from there, you, you would just roll the number of the stat or higher to uh, have a, a success and, and then force the opponent to do something and to, to respond to that. But other than that, yeah, every Edgar covered it. All right. Now, with this mechanic, 
are you seeking to do a, a simulation of warfare at the time period or something generalistic? Nope. Um, well, I always put it down to the cinematic outcome. That's versus... the one. Okay. Yes. Yeah, cinematics. It's going to feel. Okay. Well, it, there's it's... the there's the classic comparison of like two fat lardies have chain of command, and when you compare that to bolt action, where bolt action is just a generalist, um, easier to consume sim- cinematic game where chain of command tries to capture the actual hugging the ground taking cover you don't walk in front of a machine gun no matter how good of an idea it sounds at the time um because that's more realistic what happened where were you guys trying to go with that i mean are we playing like rourke's drift like pulling out commission dates and comparing them to see who's in command where where are you going with this so i'm gonna say that we're we're actually a little bit of both of those two games that you just said, uh, the, the super fluffy beer and pretzel stuff, but also keeping track of, uh, in a little way, uh, of, of the use of cover and things like that, because that's kind of what we need to get into when we go into this modern type of combat. Um, the way it works is each force has a leader. It's usually a lieutenant or a captain or a major. And that person is in charge of the portion of a probably like a company that is going out and sending skirmishers to spread out and, and fulfill whatever objective it is. And the objectives could be something like uh, raiding and, and trying to destroy some uh, enemy cash or defend an objective or ambush the enemy, just kill them, whatever. So um, we have one leader and that leader, his job is basically to keep everyone in the fight. And then we have multiple units. Uh, usually our games start at 150 points. That point value, you can have four to five or six units, depending on which army and how many you, you get. Each unit has between four and eight models, with some exceptions. And uh, what you want to do is control one unit at a time with the leader's help to be able to fulfill whatever your mission objective is. The missions are randomized uh, in the core book. We have plans to have more historical uh, missions where things aren't quite as random. But for the core book, we have six randomized missions and each mission will tell you what you have to do in order to get the opponent to route off the table, basically. Um, same thing for the opponent. What's interesting is uh, you and your opponent may have the same exact mission or you may have some completely different missions and you don't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what you're doing. Uh, with gameplay and experience, you may be able to figure out what he's up to. Um, I should say he or she is up to. Um, so um, that adds a little bit of fog of war, actually quite a bit of fog of war in trying to fulfill your mission while trying to keep the other guy from doing the same. And uh, it's, that's gone really well. That's, we've had very good uh, reviews based on that. No, I, I like that because I've seen other game systems that do that where you don't share the common objective in the scenario. So in theory, you could actually achieve your objectives without ever shooting at each other, but you can also deceive your opponent by taking actions to make these, ah, they're playing that game. Okay. Right. And then they're just baiting you into a trap. There. Right. The opportunity for metagaming in this game are just amazing between the initiative bidding system that uh, Damien came up with, uh, that yeah, some uh, big time metagaming there. And then also, like you said, you could psych your opponent out by making them think you're trying to do something and you're not. Um, in order for you to win this game, you have to kill the opponent. There's no way to win this game without okay. causing some casualties. Um, uh, in 
currently. London plunder, we have something called strike points. So uh, every 25% casualties, you earn a strike point. And when you have enough, you have to check to see if you stay in the game or not. We have the same thing where we call them attrition points. Uh, so for 25% casualties, you take an attrition point. You also take attrition points if your opponent fulfills certain objectives. So whenever you or your opponent, whenever anyone gets to three attrition points, you start checking to see whether you stay in the game or not. None of the missions allow you to give your opponent three attrition points. The most you can give them is two. So the third has to come from casualties. All right. Um, so you mentioned unit size, but when you actually do a full force, um, what kind of model count are you looking like? Are we talking small elite forces or a mob force? Or does it depend on whether you're doing the imperialist power versus the tribal powers? What I think I like to put that in because it's like the models actually drive the buy-in cost on this. So what, what kind of force sizes are you looking at that the game can handle? Really, it's up to you. You can go, you can spend more on less or mix it up or um, I guess we don't really have a true horde army option currently um but i mean 150 point starting army would probably be somewhere in the 20 to 30 model range give or take um and if obviously if you go up then it's gonna um the model count's gonna go up there but again depending on what you're taking that that number could be less than that if you take a cavalry option or if you take a mounted weapon then you're not necessarily going to have 20 models on the field at 150 points so um you have flexibility as far as what you want to put in to uh to bring to the table it does depend on the time period uh model point values for models uh later in the period say like the spanish american war because of the kind of weapon weaponry they have and their training and, and things they tend to be a little more costly per model than say the peasants from the Mexican-American War that are really, that's, they're pretty cheap. So um, there's where the balance comes in where you can have fairly crappy uh, troops, but you can get a whole lot of them. Uh, they have a special rule called large. So those peasants, the same as the Zulu warriors can have units of up to 10 models. Uh, and because they're cheaper, you have more of those units. So that's where your, your balance, that's where your rogue strips uh, comes into play. Okay, because I was just thinking of when you think of um, some of the U.S. cavalry, like uh, Fort Apache, Fort Laramie, the old radio broadcasts, like the major would get seven guys and head out um, to find out where the Raiders were or the Philippine Constabulary. You're looking at 10, 15 man patrols um, versus like something like a punitive expedition in like Afghanistan where you the British might bring out like 300 guys in a column and head out. That's what I was trying to figure. Is there a point of where the rules break down because you have too large of a model count? You're trying to control too many units and you need a higher level abstraction game. So the game was designed between 150, which is around 25 models and 300 points in a three, uh, 150 we'll play in a three by three table. Okay. Uh, 300 we'll play in a three by six table. Uh, usually the 300 point models we've been playing those as teams so so that is a little easier to to manage but it's absolutely fine and not at all difficult for one person to control a 300 point army and when it comes to the zulus for example a 300 point army is around 80 models um 
the idea here is, as Damien pointed out, we have a, a difficulty in the entry level of historical gaming in that when people see a lot of these Napoleonic games or, what, or ACW games, and there are like hundreds of models on the table, they look wonderful, but I'm not going to paint, you know, 500 models. So what we do is, okay, well, so 150 points, that's going to be about 25 models. And then you can work your way up from there, depending if you want to keep playing the game and want to do some bigger stuff, you can absolutely do that. As far as the military-wise, like what we're talking about rating forces, uh, basically uh, in that time period, you will take a company, send it out to do the skirmish line. And what they would do is split up, take half of the company and send it in a true skirmish and the other half of the company stay back and forward. What we're playing is that half of the company that has gone up to set a skirmish line. What it's anachronistic in our system because it's a game and we have to make it playable is that usually in the skirmish line, those guys will be in groups of two or four and they're supporting each other and, and just shooting. Uh, whereas for us, we have uh, uh, units of four to eight models. And it's up to the player how little to make, you know, how big to make the unit, um, which doesn't quite, and, and they have a cohesion. They have to stay within six inches of each other. So it kind of breaks down how that actually happened in, in, in true history, but it makes it playable much better. Okay, that's a... Hopefully we answered your question. <laughs> no, no, that there's always that balance between historical accuracy and playability because I think we understand. I love the three-by-three three table <laughs> format. Um, how many depend... And considering you're covering like a world geography and there are a whole bunch of theaters of such like uh, some of the Moro Islands, um, you might only have 20 foot visibility when you start hitting the jungle and there's no spreading out into a skirmish line um you've got to move in column down that road uh so that but is that really a fun game just to fight, fight on like a four inch section of your board so i understand that uh completely um but how much can you customize your force because i think this goes into i think we need to talk about since you're covering so many theaters the numbers of weapon systems that you're going to have to account for. And some of the mismatches, some will have firearms, some won't. Um, how much do you see you can customize your force? Like, uh, are you taking to historically accurate TOEs, like tables of organization and equipment? Or do you allow people to like uh, 1901 pre-Thompson? So, <laughs> but how many, so it's I can't bring 15 Gatling guns on my um no, So speaking posture. of anachronisms and things, uh, another thing that, that you could absolutely do in the game that wouldn't really be quite right is uh, to use the Spanish-American War as an example. You'd be hard-pressed to see a, a force, a skirmishing force that has U.S. infantry, U.S. cavalry, rough riders, and uh, uh, buffalo soldiers with a Gatling gun behind them. That, that's not likely to happen. And you would usually have a skirmishing force from one regiment of U.S. infantry or the rough riders or whatever. But to add the element of more fun and a little more spice to the game to make it something better and customizable, we, we are able to do that. Some of those units are rated as core units. You can have as many core units within the point value as you, as you want. Some of them are rated as support units, uh, like the Gatling gun as a support unit. And our support units are also unique, which means you can only have one of them. So that Gatling gun in the US force, there's only one in the table, one from your side anyway. So um, 
so that creates some restrictions right there uh, to keep it from completely running out of control. Um, so that's how that's how we tackle that. Uh, the player has complete freedom within those force building uh, rules as to how they want the forces to be. Some players are going to opt to take um, smaller units so they can have more of them and maybe gain some tactical advantage because each unit gives you uh, a dice towards your initiative pool. Um, some guys are going to opt to do larger units uh, just so that they can stick around a little longer because the small units tend to disappear rather quickly. Well, so that, that's a good point. Do you have a morale issue? Because normally in games, if you have a small unit, yeah, you get more dice for the initiative, but there's that trade-off. Any damage that unit takes, you you lose it because it breaks. So yeah, Damien, talk to him about uh, yeah the fatigue. So if you're shot at um, and you have to make a save, then you're gonna have to roll a fatigue dice and uh, or, I'm sorry, a morale dice, a resolve dice to make sure that uh, you guys want to stick around. If they fail that, they're going to stay, start taking fatigue or there's other actions that you can uh, do that will cause fatigue. And then as fatigue starts piling up, it's going to restrict the number of actions you can take. And then at some point, your guys are going to be wanting to get off the table. So they're going to start backing up. And uh, you can uh, get rid of the fatigue, but again, that's going to take away from other things that you can actually, in certain instances, that's all you can do is try to get rid of the fatigue as you're backing up. Um, so that, yeah, that, that becomes a, uh, an issue as well as if you double the fatigue of the number of models you have, that, that unit's just going to quit. They're done. So, uh, if you have a four man unit and, uh, you take two casualties and then you end up with four fatigue somehow that, that unit's going to disappear. They're not going to be there anymore. So hopefully that was clear as mud. But uh, that's that's a fatigue uh, that that's you have to manage that as well. A lot of that, honestly, a lot of the game too is really managing your fatigue, not over fatiguing your guys and and uh, getting them set up to hopefully cause that on the opponent and then capitalizing on that. No, I'm just as you're describing the rules, I'm trying to think of the different John Wayne movies where, yeah, he sent four guys off to go around. But okay, yeah, that that could work. <laughs> uh, you can you can send them. <laughs> well how long do you how long should an average game last because there's normally so we've talked about like there's a size commitment three by three or three by six there's a model commitment what's the time commitment on this what are you thinking of a single game should normally last for a player i think a smaller game 150 point game you should easily not counting setup of the board I mean, you should easily be able to finish it within an hour and a half. Um, if you get bigger, obviously, it's going to take longer to resolve that. And again, depending on what your objectives are or your mission is and their mission, uh, you know, if you start accomplishing what you need to, it could it could last far shorter. So, um, but I mean, an hour and a half, it's perfect to, to throw down and, and play a game. Well, do you have a turn count on this? Like some games say like, you get six turns of I go, you go, and then the game's over. You got to resolve it there. Or is it only until someone's tabled or the object is achieved? Basically three attrition point. I'm trying to think of, we don't have any missions that are. Well, so we do have uh, rules that say that for the length of the game should be six to eight turns. Okay. Uh, players should kind of agree to how many turns they're going to play. And if they want to play 22 turns, they can play 22 <laughs> turns. That's yeah. fine. Uh, if we do competitive play, of course, that's going to be mm -hmm. 
uh, further modified by the time available because you may have to do 90 minute turns or, or uh, yeah, uh, 90 minute rounds or 60 minute rounds. And then you have to you know speed that up. The missions and the victory conditions take that into account. So yeah, if you table your opponent, if he gets three, three um, uh, uh, fatigue or attrition points, sorry, and they check morale and they, they bug out and they, you win clearly. But we have rules in place. Uh, so what, what happens if we time out or if we run out of turns and there is no clear winner? There's, that's in place already. So um, yeah, we, keep, we take that into account. But five to six, what we've been doing is, uh, sorry, six to eight. So what we've been doing is um, at six turns, uh, you can roll to see if you play a seventh turn. It's a 50-50. If you do great at the end of the seventh turn, you roll again to see if you play an, an eighth turn. That is something we've got in the book. It's a suggestion for players. But honestly, we leave it completely up to the players to determine how long they want to play the game for. And, and again, if we when we go to competitive play, that will be something that will be set in the rules for the, for the tournament. All right. Now, one of the questions I like to ask is, since we're trying to simulate um, a period of warfare, how do you handle uh, fog of war and surprise? Now, you already talked that you want fog of war built in, but especially when you move into a tournament, I know that can cause, what, what do the kids say now? Feel bads. <laughs> um, uh, so how much of that uh, real realistic fog of war do you want to capture in that game? Or are you okay with both players having perfect battlefield clarity? Well, again, I think Edgar mentioned before, um, you know, initially when you first start playing the game, you're not necessarily going to have an idea of what your opponent is doing. But after you play a little while, you're probably going to have a pretty good idea of what they're aiming for. Again, unless they're just playing with your head and trying to psych you out as far as uh, going for an objective with they don't necessarily need to do that or something of that sort. But um, um I kind of got lost in the weeds there. As far Something as, else to consider. I'm going to pull you out of the weeds. Yeah, jump in. <laughs> tap tap so in. We talked about the initiative pool in, in before, and we, we, you know, the two players, me and my opponent, would bid off of that bid off of those values. But something we didn't mention before is uh, the value of the die that you're bidding for makes a difference in two ways. The first and most important one is if the die that you're using is a one, two, or three, then the unit you activate starts with one action. They only do one thing. If you bit, if you use a die with a four or higher, four to 10, then um, that unit gets two actions to start with. Now that could be mitigated by the level of fatigue they have and things like that too. But that's, that's pretty much what you get. It's one action or two actions. So you may have a terrible initiative role and end up with units that do very little. There's your fog of war right there. Uh, or you can have an amazing, you can do a whole lot more than your opponent can. Now, the other thing that we use with initiative roles that adds fog of war is uh, we have a fortune and calamity. It's like an events table. So if you roll more ones than tens in that initiative role, you're going to roll on the calamity chart and see what happens to one of your units. If you have more tens than ones, then you roll on the fortune chart and something good happens to one of your units. We, uh, that starts in turn two, so it's not something you start the game with because it may be just a little too punishing to have a calamity on turn one when you don't have guys on the table yet. But um, that's another way that we can add events uh, and, and 
things that you're not expecting and just maybe a monkey wrench into your equation. You think you're going to do something that just doesn't work out for you. So um, I think that's it for initiative, how you add more fog of war uh, via the initiative. I think I had another thought, but uh, you know what? I'm getting old. I'm, I'm not remembering them. <laughs> no, and I, yeah, I appreciate you. Yeah, you, you, you saved my bacon on that one. Yeah, so that, that's it right now. Unless, And again, for tournament, we may do something entirely different if that's what we end up doing to try to maybe mitigate that or even it up since it's going to be a different style format. Well, because I know games like Infinity, you'll have like uh, the lieutenant is undeclared and hidden. And it's mm. only by observing you get to figure out who the lieutenant is. Or in some games of uh, bolt action, Warhammer, you have to mark on a sheet of paper, like you put down like a little token. Your opponent doesn't know what that means, but you got to mark down and say, like, well, if you step on it, you'll have a surprise. Um, which there always brings me in deployment that, that you can kind of throw a monkey wrench depending on the mission. And uh, we also do have hidden setup now. Guides eye view, you're going to be able to see that figure on the table, but the the other force is not going to be able to react to that individual until the hidden figure does something. Um, so I guess that's a little bit more further kind of potential for fog of war. Well, I, I bring up the fog of war question because if you push it far enough, there has to be a lot of trust on both sides mm -hmm. of the table, or you need a GM. Yeah. So if you're playing in a store or a club, so you need a third person to like step out. And yes. And we, and we found in our experience that the more fog of war you add to the game, the longer it takes to play it. Yeah, so <laughs> we, we have to keep some of that out of it. Um, I think we've done a pretty good job at giving you an experience that it's difficult to, even if you were playing exactly the same force against exactly the same opponent who has exactly the same force, chances are very high that the game's going to go completely different simply because the missions are going to be different and your initiative roles are going to be different. And one more thing, I, I, I remember now what I wasn't remembering before. We have a way to mitigate the dice luck. Like I said earlier, you could have a completely terrible role for initiative and, you know, well, I'm going to lose this turn because I have all these ones, twos, and threes. But we have three tokens, three markers called the bite the bullet tokens or markers. And so what you can do, there's a rerolls. So you can spend them throughout the game to reroll a roll. Um, the, the, the catch is you have to reroll the entire thing. So if you have some successes and some failures and you really need to <laughs> take another roll at it because maybe you need more successes than that, then you can spend, uh, a, a, you can bite the bullet, spend the token and then roll the whole thing again. So that, that helps out. And then finally, another way to, to deal with uh, a little bit of fog of war is our the leaders. They're not really attached to any one unit. They're easy to see in this time period, the leaders are fairly visible. Actually, leaders wanted to be visible. They wanted their guys to see where he was. So they're going around and doing things. They get a number of commands. And when they issue a command to a unit nearby, that unit gets to take an action. It's a free action. It doesn't count as an activation for them. And it could be an action they've already taken, for example. It could be a unit that's nearby, that's in the middle of a melee fight has already fought and he can tell them to fight again. And so they swing, swing again. Uh, so that, that can make things a little uh, loopy for someone if the opponent is giving commands left and right and making them do stuff. And finally, <laughs> every nation has a national trait. And so it allows them to do some things, uh, break the rules in a particular way. 
An example of that uh, for the Zulu force is uh, they have a special rule called horse on the horns of the buffalo. And what allows them to do is they can take a second leader. I, I said earlier that you can only have one leader, but the Zulus can take a second leader so that you can do the whole horns thing. And um, they also are allowed to run multiple times without fatiguing as quickly as everybody else does. So the rules say if you run uh, and you run again, you get a fatigue. But the Zulus have a pretty good chance of not getting a fatigue when they when they run. So again, another way to, that's not really fuck of war because my opponent knows that I'm able to do that. It's not like anything that comes out of nowhere, but it's another way to sort of make some changes to make it more period specific and flavored. Now, let me ask you, um, is there a campaign feature for this? Um, there is it now, but there will be in the supplements. Okay, because okay, um, a lot of the areas of history you're talking about, a lot of those skirmishes happen as like normally one force starts at one point and has got to get to another point, And you could break that up into smaller engagements such as pushing north out of Manila, um, pacifying the Luzon, robbing the bank as the filibusters did. But um, that's not in the core rule book. That's going to be an addendum. Right, because those campaigns are going to be period specific. Okay, that, so that brings us into the next question. So <laughs> you're going to have, how are you going to handle period specificity? Because um, you have six periods in the core rule book, how are you going to handle um, the appendices, like adding new periods? So these supplements. So for like as, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, um, we plan to have, for example, our next one, we've already announced it, so I might as well say it. Our next, uh, our first supplement is going to be for the Franco-Prussian War. The Franco-Prussian War is not part of the core rule book, but it's a major war that happened, and, and it really invites the players to play this style of gaming. Um, so our first supplement will be for that war, you can use the same missions that we use in the core rulebook, but we're also introduced some historically based missions. So you get to re reenact or replay something that actually happened in real life. The difference, of course, is we're not doing major battles uh, at, you know, in Orléans or something where you have divisions against each other. We're just doing the little skirmish where, you know, this company ran into that other company. Um, you know, that, or, that'd be perfect for the pioneer train troops the Prussians had. Cause they only moved in company size formations. And I think there was only like five or six companies of them. And it's like, yes. In large engagements, how do you represent 150 and guys? And a full company is already too large for yeah. our, the scope of our game. Um, but we can do campaigns based on those historical, uh, what actually happened historically, or at least we can base it on the, the starting point is what was happening historically. And then of course, each game will, will change history as it goes. So the supplements are going to go, beyond what we have in the core rulebook, which is um, a lot of the units that are most known and popular, but uh, in the supplements, we'll go a little deeper into uh, the units and the weapons, the tactics that were used, uh, and then the missions that are more flavored to that particular period. I think for anyone listening, you can't see Damien working on his pickle hobs right now. <laughs> That's why he's yeah. less than engaged. Just, just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see the camera shaking. <laughs> <laughs> I might somebody might have hit me up on work too, so okay, a little distraction. Sorry, <laughs> no problem. 
All right. So um, as you release these supplements, I think we're familiar with like Blood and Plunder had like um, the Frontier one, Raise the Black. Um, are they going to be full books, paper books, PDF only? The goal would probably be to be books. Now, as far as hardcover, softcover, I guess that's just going to be, you know, we'll just have to wait and see, honestly. The honest truth there, uh, dude, is uh, it depends on how well the book does. I mean, yeah. if we... If if we don't sell but 300 books, uh, we're probably not going to have any supplements. It's just that's money talks, right? So we're going to have to uh, show that we're successful with this first print anyway. And then we'll get the green light to go ahead and go into supplements. We're working on them already. So we're not going to wait to see what happens and then start working on them. So we're, we'll be prepared to have something in mind and then have a, a um, sensible schedule for new releases for these supplements. But they all uh really depend on how well uh the stuff the previous stuff is done uh because we're basically selling firelock games into the idea of of publishing these for us and they will make the determination uh whether this uh is a pdf only type of thing or if it's something that's going to be printed as a soft cover or or how that's going to happen um it's very likely that a lot of these supplements because they're not going to be uh super thick that may be done in, as a softback uh, but we don't know. That's not our call. Uh, we don't really know that That's at this point. Uh, and I think we'll probably know a little bit better once we, we get to writing. So that'd be interesting. Personally, there's certain companies who love to sell you a thousand books to play your game. And that's not what we're trying to do. That's not the goal here. The goal is to just be able to dive into a certain theater a little bit more deeply than we could just with a, a core representation. So we're not going to sell you, you know, four books to be able to play the British. That doesn't make any sense. Um, but, um, you know, again, like Edgar said, it really depends how people accept this. And then moving forward, um, that's going to determine what else we can we can dive into. Yeah. All the companies for the for the Spanish American War may sell you a Spanish book, an American book, a Filipino book and a Cuban book. Uh, no. And then a theater book that has no yeah. room for all of them that are only True, yeah, yeah. the Philippine yeah. theater and the Cuban theater and the Puerto Rican theater. Now, uh, for us, that would just be uh, one book or perhaps even part of a book. Uh, so, for example, and I, I put this on Facebook, so it's nothing new. Uh, when we talk about playing Plains Wars with uh, all the different native uh, uh, tribes and, and nations, that will be one book. We're not going to do a book for the Apache and another one for the Comanche and another one for the Sioux. It's going to be Plains Wars, which take basically the entirety of our time period and include everything in there. There will be some changes, of course, because the cavalry worked differently when they were fighting against the Comanche or the Seminole uh, versus when they were fighting uh, somebody like Kickapoo or somebody else. So um, that will be taken into account as a supplement. Um, and like Damien said, it, we have no interest in selling, um, not going to use the other word, but uh, in selling a book for each army, that's, that's just not our style. All right. Well, let me ask you, um, I don't know, the Plains Wars, I, I know I could see an Apache book because the Apache and the Navajo were two different animals there. So, I mean, I... I know from a historical perspective, I could see, you know, Philippines, South and North being different books. But I mean, it's like, how far are you willing to drill down? Um, 
but do you see your business case limited by the availability of models? Because you're not producing your own models on this. Um, and there's parts that I'd be fascinated to play with your rule set, but it's like, I know for every one of those models, I'm going to have to custom them up. Um, but 3D printing is starting to take off. It's, it's really done. There's, there's so many models. I have so many files of models for sci-fi stuff. But the great thing is, is that historical STLs are picking up. And uh, so even if there's not necessarily a line out right now, there are definitely people who are making historical files that uh, if, if they see that there is conflicts that they could design some figures for. Um, and again, with Patreon and, and a lot of different other, there's some other uh, sites that, that specialize in that and kind of have a subscription model. And if they're polling people and they're saying, we'd love to, we'd love to fight in the, you know, emu war, uh, can you bash up some emus and, you know, somebody might do that. So while it may not necessarily look like there's a whole lot of potential now there, I think that if there's, if there's a conflict out there, and people see that there's a niche to be filled, somebody's probably going to end up filling that niche. Oh my! my and James, one thing that we said, one thing that we said to our uh, our followers or so far in the YouTube channel and in uh, in Facebook, is um, that there are three main things that are going to determine what supplements are done. Uh, one of them is fan support. Like, what do the fans want? Because why would we make something that people don't want to play with? The other one is uh, availability of, of models. Like if, if Damien and I can't get the models to be able to do the play testing and things yeah. and to get the pretty pictures for the book, then that may be an issue. We, we may not be able to go into that particular period. Uh, we do know of certain people that are very particular about certain models. For example, our second Seminole War, we don't have US Marine models. We have not been able to find any. But there are someone who's very interested in it. And so they're working on an STL file for U.S. Marines for that period. So that will that, that sort of thing will, will help out. Uh, and the third one, of course, I already mentioned is the success of the line. So if it starts, if it stops being successful, then there's no sense in putting out any more books. All right. Now, in your core rulebook, do you have an option for um, co-op or solo play? Because I can imagine mm -hmm. work, Works Drift, with, that's a, I think a lot of people have done solo plays off that because you know just wave after yes, wave it, ai function if you watch if you go to our youtube channel is uh blood and steel uh on youtube you'll see some videos of play uh, play games sorry uh, gameplay that's the what i'm looking for <laughs> where you'll have uh pretty much in all gameplay is uh, multiple players per side so there'll be uh, two players in a side or three players in a side that's about as big as we usually go um so it's definitely not just one v one uh, we the book does tell you how to go about playing with uh, multiple players per side of that team game, but not really an AI function. So um, you know, if you're playing solo, you're going to kind of know what's going on. <laughs> I don't know if there was some randomness on like some of the Haitian jungle patrols, like group of gorillas jump out and like attack you here. No, not not as such. Not initially. No. If we're playing solo, you, you pretty much have to play the defend mission. Yeah. With yeah. one side. Yeah. All right. Um, I think when I was looking at the website there, um, how about we go over, if someone's still listening to this, um, how do you go over <laughs> about acquiring this game? Like, where, where do I get this? 
Firelock Games would be a good spot. Um, so their website, there's going to be other uh, independent retailers who are, are buying um, from, from them, both in the States and abroad. Um, and then at cons, like there's potential that, uh, well, I know we're, we're going to definitely be at Historicon. I can't speak to uh, necessarily other cons right now, but, uh, and Firelock will be there as well. But um, Firelock Games is going to be the easiest way right now to uh, go and place an order for the core rulebook. And they actually have some army deals up there as well. So you can get, um, I think, a couple starters and a rulebook. Yeah, this is not a bad time to start that. No, it's a great time. They're running a sale right now, a free a free purchase or free sale. Uh, I think the MSRP on the book, Damien, please correct me if I'm wrong, is 45. Uh, after pre-order, yeah. Initially, yes. it's going to be 39, I think. $39 right now if you pre-order through uh, uh, Firelock Games on their website. And like he said, you can buy it uh, as a book. It's a hardcover. You can buy it as a PDF. You can buy a bundle with, you can get both. Um, and you can buy some bundles that include, I think the two bundles are for the ACW and for Anglo Zulu. So one bundle, it's like a two-player bundle where you, you get the book and you get um, a box set for Union and a box set for uh, Confederate. And in the other one, you get a box set of British and another one for Zulus. So it's enough to, to get started. It gives you 150 points and then some. Um, and then from there, you can you know buy different kinds of units and things if you want to go into... Uh, a deeper game okay uh i have to appreciate um because i think when i saw that one of your army deals and one of your six areas of focus was the american civil war um there is a sense uh like warlords epic when they covered acw is basically lightly dressed napoleonics um that was a very short period of the war before people learned getting shot really hurts um, and get places like Kansas and Tennessee like, out there. We're just, you know, cavalry raids back and forth. Uh, so it was actually interesting to see you guys take an alternate look at uh, the civil war and say, no, this is a really bad skirmishing environment. A lot, a lot of those psychopaths that inhabited the West in the 1870s, they cut their teeth <laughs> in the civil war. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things we needed to be able to do is uh, to be able to play Devil's Den using our rules, because uh, that's well, that's a that's a heck of a fight, and it will be awesome. Um, actually, uh, Damien, uh, now that James just mentioned this, I think I have an idea for a T-shirt uh, on the back of the T-shirt. You can put "Getting Shot Really Hurts" and then put <laughs> James James's name on it, like in quotations and stuff. That would be awesome. I'm gonna write hey. that. No, I just try to distill down to the purity of the essence. It's like. We really shouldn't stand this close to each other and keep doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, and it's what happened in, in military history, like for so long, we are always stuck fighting the last war, right? That's what we're prepared for. And it takes a few campaigns to recognize that uh, the new technology uh, keeps us from fighting the way we've been fighting. Uh, so yeah, that's what happened, especially in the American Civil War. You, you have to adapt new tactics and uh, start doing things like entrenchments and things uh, to, to be able to deal with the kind of firepower that comes your way. No longer would you have cavalry doing headlong charges against infantry because they're just going to get shot to pieces. Well, you know, since we're on this topic right now, you're doing skirmish in the Civil War and your army lists of um, Union versus Confederates, 
do you tackle like the logistics nightmare of the confederacy of just like 20 different weapons uh options that um the troops would carry versus like you know everyone on the north being outfitted with uh what gosh i'm blanking on repeaters and the other one do do you have that specifically for the civil war for the core rule book we concentrated on the beginning of the war it's a pretty sexy period to do because you have you know, you have several zoobs and things and you can do, you can make it look pretty cool. Um, and it keeps it very simple. The parody is a little bit better uh, at that point. We don't, because we're still, again, we're talking uh, the skirmish line type of game. We don't go deeply into the logistical issues or the organizational issues at, at the higher echelon. Um, not in the core rule book, but we would definitely have to tackle that uh, as we do a supplement that includes multiple periods of the war um, the two theaters, the two main theaters uh, being East and West. Um, and then also as a campaign, how the logistical issues will change what's happening in your little skirmish line. Okay. Uh, you know, that was, so I don't know if you realize, I'm, I live in New Mexico and New Mexico was invaded by the Confederacy, but it was such a small invasion. You can't play it with Epic, like Warlord Epic. Like but you, can't one, you, you get like one stand of figures and they'll move forward against the other one stand. So your rule set would actually fit into like the idea of like the four cannons, the Confederates brought with them, that type of thing. Like, um, so there's a lot of uh, potential to explore the lesser known parts of history with this rule set. Um, so I've gone over where to get the game, which is Firelock Games, $18 for the PDF on pre-order and uh, by the time this episode comes out, there'll be three days left to order. But even the PDF route, it's a good way to go. Now, is there anything else about your game that you want to get out there before we sign off here? I think we really like it. <laughs> your fans? I, I, I think so. I think the authors did a great job. Um, well, we'll see know. if your names are in War Games Illustrated for best game of the year. Yeah, I mean, that would just be another check mark off on the bucket list i'll so. get the bot farm going sending in <laughs> that would be amazing yeah that would make my amazing. life um yeah we, we have a lot of room for growth and we're very excited about that um so it, it was a big deal to tackle such a large period of time but you know we were able to basically claim it for firelock now no one else in the firelock team is going to be developing anything for this time period so <laughs> is, is that we a got, good sign is that a good sign or a bad sign like no one else had it or it no one else wanted it <laughs> Here's the well, deal. No one, Some, someone got annoyed that we were in there because they they wanted to do something and and they got they got knocked out of that situation and they knew who they are. <laughs> and and hopefully he'll be listening to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, so that's really cool. We, there's so much Crimean War. We can go to and, and deeper on the conflicts that we are having in the core rulebook. Like for example, American Civil War, an American Civil War supplement would be amazing to put together. So. Um, so, by the way, just because these six are in the core book, rule book doesn't mean that we're not revisiting these six. Uh, we absolutely okay, plan to do so. Um, and it may be under the different auspices. For for example, the Second Seminole War may be part of a, another book for Westward Expansion, because that's kind of what we were trying to do, only in this case, Southward Expansion. Anyway, um, we can deep, uh, do a deeper dive on those things. But this gave us a good way to get people indoctrinated into the game into how the mechanics work 
And if we could get some people that are into sci-fi and fantasy, uh, that the cost of entry into the game is rather low. You don't have to worry about, you know, painting hundreds of models. And then we've done our job. Well, I have to admit, um, looking at your rule set fills out um, War Games Atlantic. So they're rolling out with boxes mm-hmm. of miniatures and it's like, there's no rules for these. And you guys come along and say, now there's rules for these. <laughs> I can, all the, the meltdown of China before the Boxer Rebellion, there's going to be a box out soon. I, I mean, that's why I got Blood and Valor was for the uh, World War German, World War French. Two plastic boxes are dirt cheap out there. So yeah. I think your rules came along at the right time for what that company is uh, putting together. Um, just like there wasn't a rule set for some of these miniatures out there. So I'm, I'm a fan of it. I'm, I'm excited about it. I just got to beat up other people to get them on board. We had to figure out how to get James to play the game. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe we can meet up with him at a a gaming convention someplace Uh, or something. Who knows? Well, so I, my first time seeing blood and plunder, uh, I traveled back to the East coast and that's when I do most of my historical gaming. So I spent about a month out in the mid Atlantic and so uh, one of the stores I was at, they were big backers of Blood and Plunder. And Nova Open has a small contingent of uh, Blood and Plunder people with their little mm. tiny boats and their intricate rigging. Um, so I, every once in a while, I make it, once a quarter, I make it out east. So I'm sure I can find, wrestle up somebody out there. To, uh, right, keep us in touch. We'll, we'll do whatever we can to get to yeah. uh, enter a game. I love the Mid-Atlantic. I was just there. You know, it, it, it's humid. And when you're in the middle of the desert, you actually start missing water after a while. <laughs> like... <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll uh, call that an episode right now. Thank you very much, um, Edgar and Damien, for uh, joining us today on Miniature Wargaming Labs. And for everyone listening, this is a really cool idea, a really cool rule set. So get on board now. All right. Thank you. And everyone, uh, good night. Thanks, James. Thank you.